I'm Jethro Jones from Transformative Principle, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com and get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. Hey, welcome back. I'm talking with Sin K. Henderson today, and he's written a powerful book called Sit Down and Shut Up, How Discipline Can Set Students Free. Controversial? Yes. Powerful? Yes. Needs to be talked about? Yes. And I don't get paid to say that. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Sin K. Henderson is a graduate of Harvard University. He has written for HBO's The Newsroom and and Showtime's The Shy. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. Today we're focused on his first book, Sit Down and Shut Up, How Discipline Can Set Students Free. Sin K., thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Uh, Hello there. Appreciate you having me. Uh, Looking forward to talking and discussing some of the themes in this book. Sounds awesome. I appreciate you being here. And uh, before we go any further, because I'm going to ask you about writing for TV in just a minute, but before I go there, your description of yourself in Twitter says that you're a candy lover. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, I'm a Southern boy. I grew up in the South, small town. You know, me and my siblings used to ride our bikes to the, I guess, corner store or whatever, I guess they call it. Um, we didn't really have corners where exactly, but um and yeah, any what used to be one called penny candy again, it doesn't it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> but I would devour. Uh, so uh, Jolly Ranchers now, later those weren't penny, but any little yeah. And to this day, I I uh, can be easily seduced by. I like whole Reese's cups or Twix, you name it. Nice, nice. I'm a I'm an Eminem's fan, so uh... <laughs> Eminem's. Yeah, I hear you. I act, you know. M&M's, with, I, I actually have in my a big old bag of M&M's in my refrigerator. Mix it with raisins and peanuts. I'm good to go. Excellent, excellent. That's uh, that's one of my uh, favorites right there. And I don't think it counts the same as a candy bar because, you know, as long as you're just eating a few of those little things, you know. it's <laughs> Exactly. And, of course, you only eat a few. So Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. At right, least for exactly. this moment, well, only a few, you know. Right. <laughs> Love it. Right. Exactly. So, but, so let's go ahead and let's let's talk about something. You you've written for HBO's The Newsroom and currently Showtime's The Shy. How did that happen? Was that something you always wanted to do? You know, what what's that like? Well, you know, it's um I can't say it's something I always wanted to do. When I was growing up, I actually the son of a preacher, I couldn't watch television growing up. Um and I couldn't um so I didn't even know. I mean, I knew I we could we watched certain things, but for the most part we couldn't watch so I didn't even know the idea that there was such a thing as writing for television. Um, again, I grew up in a small town in the South. Um, I only kind of even became aware of it after I went to college. Um, I went to Duke and then I transferred to Harvard. And I did know relatively early that I wanted to be some type, and I don't even know if I explicitly said this to myself, but I certainly had a feeling 
for being some type of writer. I'll say that. So I always thought that would be books of some sort or essays or write maybe a journalist. Um, and in college, I worked for Newsweek. I was a, uh, I wrote for Newsweek at a uh, byline even though I was in high school, in college. Um, and so not only, not until I moved out to Los Angeles um, was I able to just so through connections and that sort of thing fall in into television writing, which as a job is, I'll put it this way, when it's going great, it's as great as anything <laughs> I've ever done. The, when it's going awful, it's as painful as any, just almost as painful as anything that I've done. I'll say the two things, being, having fallen into education as well, the only thing that I enjoy more than I enjoy writing for television is when I'm really, really, really having a great time teaching a class that I enjoy joy, a topic that I enjoy with students who are responding to that kind of, those are the two true professional joys that I experience. When they're, and when both are miserable, they're both miserable for different <laughs> reasons. But yeah. Gotcha. So do you, do you write the whole script yourself? Is it one section? Do you collaborate with others? Is, is it a story that you create? How does, how does that work? You know, all of those, yes to all of those and no to all of those. It depends on what's called the showrunner style. So I work for a relatively well-known writer named Aaron Sorkin. He conducts his rooms called a writer's room, different than say the room that I worked in just this past uh, year on Showtime. So generally speaking, we all, anywhere from eight to 10 writers sit around in the room. I worked on the second season of this show. So the characters are, were already established. But we sit around in the room and said, okay, this is what happened last season. What do we want for every character next season? We start with broad questions. And then we say, oh, I want this character to fall in love. And it should be with this person. And so we'll do broad strokes. And then everybody will pitch specific ideas for each character. And then you break it down per episode. So then, so what, what, if we want this person to fall in love with this character for the, over the course of the season, but what do we want to happen in the first episode? That's the beginning of that story. That, so, so that so it's called a character arc. Then in episode one, you'll say, okay, we're at the beginning of that character arc. So do we does he meet her in this first episode, or does he does he fall in love right away when he first sees her? Does she like it? You know that sort of thing. So we all take ownership of that, and then an individual writer usually will take whatever we and we'll come up with outlines for every character just sort of broad strokes of what they're doing. And that that uh, one of the eight writers will take that script, take that outline and make it into a script. That's cool. That's very cool. It just kind of fascinates me how uh, that uh, works out and then uh, you end up seeing what you see that the, the actors portray. So good stuff. Yeah, that, that's, that's the satisfying part when you, um, everybody likes different parts of it. I like the most, you know, as you say, there's pitching the ideas, there's the writing it, and then there's the filming it. Um, and once you've written it, you go to set with the actors and you sit there on set and you give them ideas and you give the director ideas and you say, oh, I'm not sure about that. They missed this and that sort of thing. So, but I, the most satisfying to me is just thinking of the ideas. I, that's for me, just kind of laying back and daydreaming is what I get the most uh, fun out of. That is so cool. So, and, I, and I got to tell you, your writing style comes through just beautifully in in your book and um because your book is something because we're going to switch now to to the book and um i gotta tell you it's, you don't want to put it down and whether the the reader 
is going to agree with you in parts or not, it's you still don't want to put down your book. You have a great way of engaging the the reader, and part of it is because it's you're telling this this story about what happened to you, the experiences you had, and then the reflections back on it. And I and I love that. So um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, um, let's get into your book. Sit down and shut up. How discipline can set students free. Um, tell me. Before we can talk about this, we got to talk to you. We got to ask this question: What led you to deciding to be a substitute teacher? Because that's that's what happens where you have these experiences. I mean, how'd that come about? Well, it was initially an antidote. I'm about to say anecdote, an antidote to um, my inherent uh, habit for procrastination, or or <laughs> my inherent uh, tendency to lay around when I should be writing. Let's put it that way. Gotcha. So, my natural, if I'm not working on a show um, or I don't have a job to go to, my natural instinct is to be up to four o'clock in the morning. I just am the world's worst night out. Wow. But that kind of end, it ended up just in this odd way messing up my day. Because So it's best when I have nothing to do when I can stand up. But I was working on a project, a writing project that was just me by myself. I wasn't at a show. And because I was going to bed so late, it just ended up messing up my writing rhythm, which is a weird sort of thing. But that said, a friend of mine had a uh, was a principal at a charter school, and she should, she she had suggested to me you should sub a couple times a week. And I thought about it. I thought, you know, this actually might not be a bad idea. It would force me to wake up in the morning, put some give some order to my day. I'm sure it'd be exhausting, but I could come home, take a rest. I wouldn't have to grade any papers and knock out maybe two or three hours of writing. Um, but it was a way to organize my day in a sort of a normal schedule. And so I just and both of my parents are educators. I've always tutored kids. I've always liked um, it, been fond of education. I've uh, been involved and interested in it in some way. And some of my my biggest heroes in my personal life are some of my teachers. Uh, and I so I did it. The first day, the, the an anecdote of which is, is the opening scene, as they say, from the book, um, which is a pretty tough scene. Where this, uh, and I'll just say, within short order, within about one or two weeks, I maybe a little longer than that, maybe three weeks, I realized there's something going one. There's something going on here that is worth investigation. That is. As far in, in a book, there's, there's a book here, I should say. There's something to be written here. I had an inkling relatively early on. I didn't do it to write a book, but I did it in order to write other things, actually. And it's just organizing my day. But once I started on this, I realized there is a story to be told here that the rest of the world and the way education is discussed is just not getting through. And I thought that maybe I might be up to it. Um, and also, I love the actual work is there were extremely challenging moments, but I also sort of fell in love with it, to be honest. I got you. I understand. I, the, uh, and, and, and to be clear, you're not, uh, you're, you're subbing in some pretty tough schools, right? Oh yeah. I mean, these were, you know, I subbed, I subbed as in, I subbed in every school type of school in Los Angeles. I subbed by the end of that year in, in at least 50 different schools. I subbed in, um, rich private schools on the west side of Los Angeles and Beverly Hills. I subbed in traditional public schools, traditional charter, uh, traditional public schools, charters on the in poor uh, Latin area era 
in in poor parts of East LA. I subbed in um, uh, certainly upper middle class Orthodox Jewish academies. I so you name it. I worked in a charter school that was in the basement of a church. There was not a type of educational environment at the end of the day that I had, did not experience during this year. And and but I would say the majority of them were in some very, very tough schools that first day. As again, I say the opening story. Um, this kid, as they say in the South, called me everything but a child of God. I mean, it was rough. He was coming at me hard. And I it, I ended up asking, I mean, uh, had the campus aide take him to the I kicked him out, had the campus aide take him to the office. And then about 10 minutes later, roughly, um, the knock on the door, he came back it was with a note saying, okay to return to class. There wasn't a detention. There wasn't a suspension. There was no apology. There was no explanation. And he pretty much sat, sat there glaring at me for the rest of the day, for the rest of the class. He and some of his buddies, you know. Right. And I just thought, whoa, what's going on here? Where a kid could like to curse me like I was, you know, I owed him money and worse. Um, and come at me really hard. A man well over twice his age, he was a high school student. And pretty much nothing happened. And uh, I just thought that was that was my first day. Um, and so that's, as I said, that's the opening story and of the book. And I just, from there, had enough experiences that were like that. In addition to some terrific experiences, I want to be very clear about that. Um, there was, I met the majority of students actually in these tough schools were delightful, maybe some knuckleheads here and there, a few more than a few actually. Um, but the story is about how one of the major crises, crises, I think crises, um, in education, which is this adolescent chaos, as I call it, that's going on in these really tough, really challenging schools, where it comes from, how to deal with it. Um, and I, and that is kind of the journey of my year, uh, trying to unpack and unravel all of that stuff. Well, and I got to tell you, you do a good job of relating it and it does tell i mean your book is a i and i'll get to this a little bit later your book tells a story that is important for people to uh have a discussion around because of uh you know there's just like what you were saying you you ended up with a situation where you needed help with something and basically the, there was no help and uh um, and, and now you're kind of on your own trying to figure out how to deal with uh, th this problem right from day one and and we're going to get more into some of those those issues that you ran into. And, and, and so what I'd like to do right, right here is kind of, let's, let's go ahead and, and delve into in the beginning of the book and actually in the inter introduction, you say this, my central bracing premise that in our toughest schools, it's not the teacher's fault. It's the students points to a larger social reality, far more complex than anything an iPad or a yoga class can fix. Can you share a little about what you're thinking here? Because boy, did you paint a picture in my brain? Because sometimes people just think, oh yeah, just give them more technology or, or uh, let's all contemplate life in our existence and let's you know, calmly do this and, and then things get fixed. Uh, can you talk about well, that? Yeah. You know, the big, I there's such a massive disconnection between the real life of a working teacher, and I was um, a sub, um, but I certainly functioned as a working teacher in many of those environments. And what teachers who work in really tough schools 
And I want to, and before I go on, I want to say, you know, I'm a black guy. I happen to be a Democrat, uh, uh, liberal, probably central, centrist, uh, center left politics. And I don't want to suggest that this is only sort of black schools or inner city schools or Latin schools. You know, this problem of student behavior, student chaos is actually is as uh widespread in some of the tough uh, white rural areas, areas too. Um, I'll get into that in a second, but I guess what I was fundamentally saying is I had no idea how bad the behavior of the kids were had gotten in really a generation. I went to a school in uh, the South. We weren't a, uh, we weren't a top notch school, but the students there never cursed the teacher. We never cursed the teacher. We fought and cursed and at, at each other all the time, but we never accosted or stepped to teachers or were aggressive against teachers. So when I say that the the idea, you know, you always say you need to be better prepared, you need better lessons, you need this. Actually, in the book, I list this long list of things that everybody says, this is going to change and transform schools. And it's just all nonsense because nobody really wants to deal with the fact that something has changed in um, something dr drastic has changed and had changed in many of these communities. And the result of that, those very profound changes, a lot of them economic, were, was and were um, what is essentially adolescent chaos, unruly behavior that the kids themselves actually sometimes don't even know how to control. And because it's such a sensitive issue, no one really wants to discuss it in a very straightforward way. And because I'm not a, I'm not in a union, I actually happen to be, I don't want to give away the book, but <laughs> um, I, um, I, you know, I don't have a stake in, let's put it this way, I don't make my living as a teacher. I make my living as a writer. But, and I thought, um, and though I didn't go in, as I said, go into this job to write a book, I did think, you know, as a sort of an outside voice looking in, People might, and as a black man, a guy who leans liberal, who is a liberal, leans uh, to the left side of politics. Um, people might take what I say about it a little more seriously than they would a teacher or a teacher's union or that kind of thing. So I just thought there was really an important untold story here that is both has historical resonance, resonance has sociological resonance um, that, um, and it's just also an emotional a narrative about my connection with the group of students that I uh, interacted with that year that I thought was really valuable and worth um, worth relating to people, relating to people. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, you're right on the money, and I just all I can imagine is that uh, uh, because becoming a substitute, you're at some point, and especially reading your story, your evenings had to be you had to be exhausted by the end of the day. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, instead of it just kind of filling your day, suddenly, <laughs> suddenly you're kind of wiped out as you're trying to figure out how to deal with the stuff that you have to deal with. So what, let, let's use that to transition into this thought about, um, you know, as a substitute, because you make a statement in the book that is so right on the money for anybody who has ever substitute taught. And I have, and what, <laughs> what you said is for a sub every day is the first day of school. You're the new kid and you've got no friends. Oh my gosh, this is so very real. And, you know, and it, I didn't want to, like you said a second, I didn't want to give away all the book because the, the next 
couple paragraphs are just so right on the money too, because by having no friends, you're having to create those alliances and you figure out relationships and figure out who's in there and who's, <laughs> you know, who's really going to try and uh, try you uh, yeah. within a short period of time. So can can you just share a little bit about uh, your thoughts here? Yeah, you know, I had to, you know, when you start to substitute, they sometimes they will, you know, there'll be these substitute uh, manuals about this is what you should say and this is how you should encourage people. And if you have trouble, you know, you know, if it gets to the point where you really feel like you're losing, you're losing the kids, you know, call the office. Well, what if the phone doesn't work? <laughs> so, you know, and I certainly worked in schools like that. So what I you literally are going in every day to a brand new environment for the most part. And sometimes, I mean, I know there are, there are, I know of a teacher who, so, who, though she needed subs when she was out, she so disliked substitutes that she actually would somehow, I forgot, but she pushed her desk up against the wall and surrounded it with chairs so you couldn't actually sit down, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, teachers are there. They're pretty nice. They're generally pretty nice to you. They're not, it's not, teachers aren't typically hostile to uh, so they know you have a tough job, but you know, they're teaching their class. So, and when you're dealing with students who know you're a sub, they're, they're sniffing to see if they smell fear. Um, and, and you got to size people up really quickly. You got to size kids up really quickly. You got to learn to size people up really quickly. You got to learn which kids you can try. You can learn which kids you don't want to mess with. You want to learn which kids you want to kick out really quickly. You want, you know, you got to be able to fit. You got to think on your feet all the time. If you don't have a lesson plan, you really are. It's real. It's, it couldn't be more of a sink or swim environment. I found, fortunately, I was pretty good at it. Um, I, I like kids. I relate to kids. Um, I have a sense of humor. That's helpful. But I also, and as they say, not one to try. Um, I got it cracking, as kids like to say. Um, and actually, kids actually start and. Eventually, I would come back to a school and I find that the kids were happy to see me. I was happy to see them. So even in these very tough environments. So it but you really are sink or swim on your own. And you got to have a lot of internal resources uh, <laughs> and a whole lot of fear um, to deal in some of these tougher. Schools. And heck, you can be in a private school and you got tricky kids. You can be in a rich private school. You got tricky kids who want to, you know, make life difficult for you. You can be difficult there too. Oh yeah. That's uh, it's amazing what, uh, um, what could end up happening. And so it's just, I, I just think it's just so amazing how you, it, I mean, which by all the schools that you were in and all the different types of schools and the backgrounds and everything that you had, I mean, you, you literally have to, uh, um, it, it keep you hopping, it keep you on your toes, trying to figure out those, those alliances and such, um, in, in such an amazing way. So what, you know, what I'd like to do, uh, now is just, you know, we're moving a little deeper into the book and, and early in sit down and shut up, you share that you came face to face with the following lawyers claiming that a student was denied their right to an education, a child claiming that he has the right to play and adults interfering with discipline because the kids have the right to free time. <laughs> Wow. You know, let's talk about this, what you experienced, because this is going to be a big part about the lessons and the action that you're calling for. Well, I, I was at this school um, and it, it was a, it was a middle school uh, and I'd gone several times to this school and I was dealing with they were I think there were sixth graders and they were run amok. They just and anybody I've taught long enough to know and you don't know until you teach middle school is the worst. Like it's just 
it's the rush of hormones, all that sort of stuff. And these kids were, at one point, a kid launched a, a racer at me. And so I did what all adults have done since the beginning of time. I said, if you guys don't get it together, I'm not going to let you go out for recess. At which point, these sixth graders who were, could not have been taller than five feet, um, several of them turned to me and said, you can't do that because we have a right to play. And I remember thinking, what the heck are you talking about? I literally laughed at him. I was like, please get out of my, I mean, it was just a joke to me. <laughs> so that class, I said, okay, you guys can do whatever you want if you want, but you're not going to have to play. And they ignored me. Then they ignored me. So then when it came time for a recess, I held some kids back. I tried to hold some other, all like say I tried to hold five kids back. One just stormed out anyway and said, no, whatever, we have a right to play. And I was, I saw a letter go, I wasn't going to chase her. But the other four stayed, or maybe it was the other three stayed. And so I was holding them for maybe half the recess. Um, and eventually, uh, then I let them go. But then later on that day, the assistant principal came to my class and said, and asked me, did you hold in some students? And I said, yeah, they were doing X, Y, Z. And she said, well, we understand, I understand that, but kid they have a right to play so these kids they weren't making that up and i didn't know what the heck they were talking about and so it wasn't until i actually started in earnest um doing research for the book that i understood what they were talking about or there is a un united nations charter from i believe 1989 that it's called the declaration of the rights of the child it's the most um, uh, the most popular or the most largely agreed on our phrase that um, treaty in UN history. And for the record, it is a beautiful document by and large. It, and um, it's kids have a right to um, an education. Kids have a right to shelter. Kids have a right to food. Kids have a right to be safe from not being conscripted into war. Um, but then there's some other ones like, you know, kids have a right to freedom of speech, to worship, you know, to have their own religion or freedom of expression, which I think some other people are like, hmm, do kids really have that? But then there was another one that said kids have a right to play. Wow. I was like, that's where this came from. Now, mind you, the United States did not ratify this treaty. Many other countries did. A, a vast majority of other countries did. The United Nations, did, uh, the United States did not. But what I realized is that individual this wasn't a mandate in the united states but individual school districts they charter schools or principals had taken that idea and decided to implement that in their own school or their own school system and to push that idea and there were parents who said the same thing and so i just thought what are we talking about here since when do kids have a greater right to play than they have a responsibility to learn math or to do what i'm asking them to do during in the classroom and so that was just one small aspect of the world I was entering, trying to solve the puzzle of this reality. That's essentially what the book, in addition to telling a story, it was me trying to solve the puzzle of this bizarre reality that I had just been thrust into. And one of these is this, the expansion of children's rights beyond what really what is reasonable. And it, it's so powerful what you write about here. And it's, you know, it's, uh, so many adults need to 
to read and, and digest what it is that you're experiencing because many of them won't vocalize what they have experienced themselves also and understand this kind of, this kind of, you know, twilight zone, uh, whatever, you know, strange, <laughs> stranger things type TV show you want to call here, the type right. of world that's happened. And, you know, that uh, where stuff has happened in, in these schools where you're like, uh, just somebody pinch me and wake me up because I'm not sure I really heard what you just said to me. And, oh. you know, and, and so where I'm going with that, because I, I, one of the things I want to really get back to eventually is, is, you know, some of the, um, this, this part of trying to get this under control because it ends up getting really out of whack. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll get that to it shortly. So one of the things that I'd like to also get you to talk about is, um, a little bit deeper into the book, you say, when I was a child, adults shielded kids from even the sight of publicly consumed alcohol, but the control crack had over its users was so great that much like the opioid users of today, they surrendered the traditional constraints that shielded kids from illicit adult behavior. And just so the listeners know, this, this chapter gets into um, how um, crack just has destroyed um, communities. And, and so I was wondering if you could kind of share a little bit about this, because I think this whole shielding, you know, the breakdown of that is so po powerful in what you're talking about. So that, yeah, so there were two things going on with this sort of expansion of basically the elimination of the line, the, the demarcation between adult and child. So the first was this sort of legal infrastructure, sort of cultural infrastructure from the United Nations. But that was just sort of in floating around in the zeitgeist. Um, but then I'll tell you the reason crack, uh, the idea of crack cocaine even entered my mind is um, what happened at this really tough school, the school where this kid kind of came at me the first day. Um, I was there again and there was a teacher who, who taught at that school and he had also gone to that school as a young man and when he was in high school. And after especially brutal day, he said, you know, this school was always tough, but we used to fight each other. The students used to fight each other. Now they fight the teacher. And I was so stunned by that. I was just, it was really a terribly bracing and unsettling thing to say. And I saw that it's true. He's right. That was my experience. Even though I grew up in the South, um, we never stepped to teachers or called the teachers or uh, talked reckless to teachers. Um, and so I, I knew that that was an important thing to say. There was a shift in, in the culture of these, some of these communities. Um, and uh, I, uh, so, and I couldn't figure out what it caused that. And one day, and this is really what began convincing me there was really a story here, a book here. Um, I was driving home and Jay-Z, the great, multi-millionaire Jay-Z rapper who um, started his life as a in, in New York as a young man. He's dealt crack cocaine. He was being interviewed, I believe, on NPR. And the interviewer asked him, what was the effect of crack cocaine coming into your neighborhood? And he said the most startling thing I'd ever heard. He didn't say it was more violence. He didn't say it was more gangs. He didn't say it was more police presence. He said... It destroyed the authority figure. It was so shocking to me, I almost got into a crowd. Um, I didn't know what he was talking about. Again, I'm from the South. Crack cocaine didn't quite touch us the way it touched other communities. But 
as I listened to what he said and then ultimately did my own research into it, um, I realized that crack cocaine was essentially a child's economy. Because of the mandatory drug laws laid down during the Reagan administration, if you were an adult and you were dealing crack, you go, you could go to jail for upwards of a decade, if not more. So what they did is they switched the selling, they gave the drugs to kids to sell. So you had kids as young as nine or 10 years old, either somehow involved in the drug trade and certainly teenagers actively selling crack cocaine to the adults. And the cocaine was so, uh, crack was so powerfully addictive, so addictive that it literally made zombies of its users. And it, and there are economists who have said, you cannot underestimate the uh, impact that crack cocaine had on poor inner city communities. It swept through those communities like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's another, another economist who said, uh, black America was catching up to white America in all the major indices of social progress, education, infant mortality, um, uh, uh, um, you, you name it. And that the only thing that retarded the growth of the social and economic growth of black America more than crack cocaine was the Jim, Jim Crow laws. And so with crack cocaine being so devastating, so all-encompassing, all with the kids being the ones who were earning the money and paying their mother's light bills because the manufacturing jobs had been depleted from the inner cities. They had, had that's where they hit first. They hit the Midwest nets, but they left the inner cities. There was no, there were no jobs because of the manufacturing of their jobs and the shipping jobs to the left. Crack cocaine came in. It was being controlled essentially by kids, not at the top, 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 but day to day. And the adults, because they were so powerfully addicted, were debasing themselves in front of these kids. And I realized, and it upended these neighborhoods in the most profound way. And so I realized that I wasn't dealing with those kids. I was dealing with the children. Those kids grew up and they had kids, but they were coming into those schools with the same uh, fundamental loss of respect for traditional authority that their parents had because their parents witnessed their aunts, their preachers, their adult neighbors, utterly um, helpless before the control of this drug and debasing themselves for another hit of crack cocaine. And I say, and I relate that now to the real crisis of the opioid crisis in the white areas of the Midwest um, who are dealing with this, with the same, in the very same way um, that, unfortunately, the same way that uh, crack cocaine was dealt with. That drug is so powerfully addictive and it is laying waste to the adults there. They are jobless, they are hopeless, and we're about to repeat another cycle. And if, if we haven't already repeated it, and I said earlier that this isn't just a crisis, I said, for Black and Latin inner city kids, it's a crisis for poor kids everywhere. There's a quote from a book about um, white kids, this is a white teacher, teacher who were teaching white kids in Midwest Ohio, who said they want us, to, it's a harsh quote, they said they want us to be shepherds to these kids, but they forget to tell us that um, some of them are raised by wolves. That's an awfully harsh thing to say, but I do want to emphasize that this isn't just a, a, me beating up on the Black kids or the Latin kids. This is a crisis for all of us. And so the issue of shielding that you were, I'm sorry, kind of going around the block to get to your point, um, is that crack cocaine was being done so out in the open by adults in front of kids who were doing the selling that the 
the that they essentially destroyed the basic bond because of how powerful crack was. The basic lines of separation, privacy, safety between adult and child. And it what it it, it created resentful kids, it created angry kids, and it and those resentful and angry kids have been pouring into these public schools ever since. It, it just it's just such amazing, you know, when you when you link all of that together and you you realize just um, that power that it would have in destroying any sort of uh, thoughts about uh, you know anybody older than me, I, I, you know, if I can prove that I'm stronger than you and have more um, power than you, I can take away your authority. I can challenge. I mean, just it just lays the pla- it just lays that wide open and. Yep. It's just amazing, and you can understand how destructive that that becomes, especially when you have uh, you know you have family members now that they've had these children who they don't want to have anything to do with, it. and and it hits all socioeconomic levels as well as uh, um, ethnicities and races. So absolutely, and I do, and you know, I as I said in the book, I absolutely bring that the connection to the opioid crisis because we are there is this real anxiety I feel on behalf. Of that, you know, I'm not from the Midwest. I don't have any relatives there. And I know that those are, you know, 80%, you know, um, either rural or working class white areas, but they are suffering through the same thing black community suffered through 30 years ago. And there's this now this uh, another drumbeat, lock, you know, lock them up, throw away the key, that kind of thing. We just have to find better ways of dealing, both with the criminal element of it, because you see that the criminal element, as awful as those guys were, it created unintended consequences. They just gave the drugs to kids. So, you know, so I'm not saying we should be going. I mean, look, drug dealers are awful people. <laughs> but, you know, we also have to think about in really complex ways about what the unintended consequences of any of the laws that we lay down are. And ultimately, what happened with crack cocaine uh, ended up devastating these communities worse than any of us have. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, unintended consequences happen with so many different things that people just they, they they don't take time to think through. They think there's an easy solution, and that's the yeah, unfortunate part. Sure. There's not an easy solution, yeah. and um, so thank you. I, I, you know, in chapter four, you know, one of the things I I want to make sure I I I bring to light here is that you are in so many different types of schools. And one of the things you just, you really see happen is that there are some schools that are doing well, even dealing with tough student bodies. They're, they're still thriving is how you refer to them. And you say, and this is what you say in the book, you say, how were thriving schools dealing with this impulsive behavior that you're seeing so regularly? And that is definitely coming from this lack of any belief that an authority figure should, you know, an adult should have any authority over some kids. And um, so talk a little bit about that impulsive behavior that you're see- that you, you, you saw and your thoughts about it. Well, that's one of the things that I think um, needs to be addressed in general, um, impulse control. The uh, it's there's a the, uh, that's one of the points I'm making. Charge for one of the biggest signs for me that sort of impulsiveness of kids was sort of out of control. Is I knew, for example, that, I think this is chapter two. I forget. I knew that I was going to be in for a rough time if I walked into a school and I heard kids cursing. And they saw that I heard them cursing and they weren't embarrassed. 
I knew I would be okay if I walked into a school, heard some kids cursing, they saw that I heard them cursing and they were embarrassed. That told me right away that the traditional lines of respect and authority between an adult and child were still intact. And I was going to be pretty much okay that day. I mean, there could be some trouble here and there, but by and large, the quote-unquote culture of that school was a generally healthy and thriving one. And that was one of the reasons I was obsessive about cursing in my presence. I would not tolerate it. That's a very small thing for a teacher or certainly a substitute to do. But that kids who curse around adults and have a hard time showing lack impulse control. And by allowing kids to curse around adults, that feeds that lack of impulse control. And so all the environments that I was in, they could be fun, thriving, even in tough schools, there were just, and it wasn't just, just consequences in place. There was also rewards in place. But what, what was clear to me is that the question of regulating, regulating youthful behavior was as important to the leaders and administration of that school as teaching math and teaching reading. And when I interacted with adults and teachers and principals, you know, the way a lot of administrators talk about behavior is also such nonsense. But I knew when I was dealing with a uh, a principal administrator who was discussing those issues as regularly and actively as they were discussing the new method of teaching, the new uh, cool, uh, uh, I don't know, there's always some new fangled way of teaching math or whatever, um, the core curriculum, whatever it is. And I knew when a school was, deal was actively involved in helping teachers um, deal with unruly kids, deal with kids who had lost a sense of respect for adults, that and who knew that impulsiveness of kids was one of the main things that was taken away from the learning environment. That was that was evident to me right away. And so that the issue, the issue of impulse control, the issue, the issue of thriving schools, I there was a school I went to and it was orderly school, kids were thriving. The biggest form on the desk was a detention slip. I went to another school that a few days later, I mean, it was run amok and there was a, it was a middle school this kid in the head, crack cocaine on his possession. And it was just, a, a, just a madhouse. And I asked the teachers next door, I said, well, what's the discipline system here? And they just chuckled to them and said, oh, we're still working on that. So it just was a blazingly clear that a clear, uh, when a clear system of, um, behavior and consequences, rewards and consequences was in place, that that school was far more on the right track than schools where there was just slipshod and no real attention to helping kids regulate their own behavior. And I want to be also clear here and say, I'm not just, uh, I'm not a law and order conservative, I'm not a law, law and order liberal. I am by no means saying the only way to help raise kids is to, you know, whip them or put them in detention. I believe in all like counseling, individual counseling, group counseling, having a fun class. I believe in all of those things. And I've tried it in the class that I taught to bring those to. I guess what I'm really just saying is the schools that I have taught in, the concept of discipline has been pushed out altogether. And so that's all I'm saying is that we need to return a serious adult conversation about what are healthy, responsible ways 
of raising kids and you always need stringency, you always need discipline in place along with the fun and the excitement and the sort of more compassionate and sympathetic ways of dealing with kids as well. It's just incredibly powerful what you're talking about. And I am I'm so thankful for us having this conversation and for you have, having it in your book. And, you know, in, in chapter six, one of the aspects that you get into is you reveal your thoughts about the need for father role models and, and good parent role models. Um, let's, let's, let's go that direction for just a little bit. This was one of the biggest revelations for me in the book. And I'm, I, I just have to knock on wood and be grateful that I was able to sort of, there were so many thoughts whirling around in my head. And I just realized that this, this experience was revealing so many fascinating things about human nature, about the uh, uh, human development, child development. And one of the biggest epiphanies really to me about the role of a father in a, ch- a child's life, um, especially a boy's life, um, and what this is what this is essentially what happened. I was subbing in a um, middle school one day, and I had subbed in that school. Um, I had subbed in that school um, a few times, and one day I was in this, and I subbed in this particular class, and I heard this kid. He was a was a seventh grade seventh grader, I believe, and he was kind of this glum look on his face. Um, um, and he said, I, he was talking to his buddy and he said, um, I, he was saying that he was worried about, anxious about, he didn't say anxious, but worried about seeing his dad that weekend. Cause when his dad gets mad, his dad punches him in the chest and knocks the wind out of him. And, and then his buddy said, yeah, my dad too. Now I know I was listening to them and I was actually smiling because I know middle school boys and I know that they were actually humble bragging. They were bragging about the strength of their dads. And that's the way they were doing. And so that was the, I I was very amused by that conversation. So then later on, I was on Twitter and there was an older guy, he happened to be black as well. And he said to his buddies on Twitter's followers, he said, fellas, what age were you when you first tested the male authority figure in your life? And the responses were uniformly hysterical. There was one guy said, I was 13, I was taller than my dad. Um, and so I stepped to him. And next thing I knew, I woke up with, on the floor with his boot on my chest, with his foot on my chest, telling me we can take this outside. Oh, and then or another guy said, I was hanging up with my boys and I talked stick to my dad. He jacked me up in front of my buddies and threw me against the walls, told me this is his house. You know, don't ever talk to me like that. And, and embarrass him in front of his friends. So those were, those anecdotes were swirling around in my head when I had a conversation with a, a really great um, psychiatrist out of Harvard. And he said, he said, quoted a, a, a statistic that said, boys who grow up without dads in communities where there are fathers tend to grow up okay because they absorb the mores of that community. So it led me to ask, what about poor boys, white and black, who grew up in communities where there are no dads? And I realized what the, the psychological mechanism that a father, a male authority figure or father or uncle, but mainly usually father, um, has in a boy's life once he hits puberty. When a boy hits puberty and he realize, uh, and he's suddenly flushed with hormones, all kids test the authority figure in their house. And they actually test them physically. And I did this to my own dad. And when a boy re- only has a mom, 
And he realizes that he's taller than his mom. He's suddenly taller than his mom. He's suddenly stronger than his mom. He's suddenly faster than his mom. And he realizes somewhere in his brain that he can actually hurt, maybe even kill his mom. His unconscious 13, 11, 12, 13, 14, whatever age he is self, tells him, oh, I'm an adult now. I'm the man of this house. And it freezes his brain about what it means to be an adult. However, when a boy has the dad and is, he tests his dad physically and his dad jacks him up or gives him a look that says, uh, who are you talking to? Or, you know, knocks him on his back, on his ass, or, you know, and puts his foot on his chest and says, this is my house. The boy says, oh, wait, maybe I'm still just a kid. And it actually gives him more time to mature. So what is it? And so that has such a powerful effect on a boy's development, realizing, you know what, I still need to wait to be a man. I still have more time to grow to really be an adult. And when boys don't have dads, they think they're adults quicker than they are. And the thing that boy 13, 14, what do, what do 11, 12, 13 teenage boys want? They want sex. They want to beat up other guys and they want money. They want dominance of some sort. And essentially, that is those boys who come into schools, they come in more unruly, harder to deal with, harder to essentially discipline. And it has a detrimental effect on their personal development and it has a detrimental effect on the schools that they go into. And this is white or black. And so one of the remedies for that is I say in the book and we can get into that, but I just realized that the psychological mechanism of having a dad is to tamp down a boy's belief in his own maturity quick sooner than he really is mature. And boys who grow up without fathers think, believe that they rule the roost because now they're quicker and faster than the authority figure in their house and stronger. It's, it's so incredibly powerful. And you, having when you work with kids you see these types of interactions and if you are honest with yourself you may even you know mind yourself if you're as as a male when you might have had thoughts where somebody put you back in your place um and you know because it it you know came out in some sort of discussion i can remember having one with my own father where you know i was very quickly reminded that uh you know i thought i had an opinion here he's like i'm not interested in that opinion and that's not the way it was said either <laughs> you know? I remember I was in the field, I grew up in the country, so I remember I was tall, I was probably about the size of my dad, and I kept trying to play, I would wrestle with my dad when I was younger, but it was, he would always win, of course, and then I remember I was, my dad was walking in the field, I feel behind the house, and I was kind of air kicking next to him, like trying to play karate, I wasn't hitting him, but I was coming really close, and it was really irritating him, and he kept telling me to stop, 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 and I wouldn't stop. And I remember he had told me in a real sharp tone, I told you to stop, right? But again, being 13 or 14, <laughs> thinking you can test the man who runs your house. Right. I turned around and I decided, you know what, I'm going to do it again. I jumped into the air thinking that I was going to kick him again. And all I, all, all I can tell you is I ended up on the ground <laughs> and, and ran into my house holding my head and, and he hit me. Da, 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 da. But that was me trying to test the boundaries and him telling me, I told you to stop, don't do it again. You know, but that was exactly how it was supposed to happen. That is the natural order 
Um, and it worked out frankly the way it was supposed to work out. Right. Uh, um, and boys who don't have that, it really creates chaos. And, and I actually heard a great phrase from somebody recently. It really moved me. He said, all kids test the boundaries. And when they find that there's nothing there, that's a very frightening moment for them. And in fact, that actually feeds the chaos in them. That feeds the sense while it makes them feel dominant, actually that dominance is a bit of a reaction to their sense of fear, I actually think. Um, because they because they actually you actually get a kids surprisingly actually get a sense of safety from having a strong authority figure around them who's not punitive, who's not, you know, outrageous, who's not cruel. Um and when that's gone, it creates chaos in the mind, emotional and psychological chaos in kids. It's just, it, and it's so evident. I mean, you you see this and you understand it because when they do respond, you know, when you do get response, even from some of the toughest kids, as you start putting some parameters on them, they might push back, but then you also start realizing there is some acceptance of it. Then you start realizing exactly what you're talking about is that they're lacking any sort of boundaries and they would love to have them at some point. And, Absolutely. And nobody, you know, look, Extreme punishments of, you know, black men and boys being shot who don't have guns and is horrifying to me. And, um, and but these are the same, but this isn't the same thing. You know, what kids absolutely who are developing need basic boundaries. And if we don't give them to them now, you know, we don't want the, the worst things that can happen to them when they're out on the streets. Um, and so that's really, um, yeah, it's really important. The uh, you know one of the things that I'd like to uh, just share here, and then I, and I'm going to move forward as we start drawing to a close. The yeah. uh, you know as the listener can tell, you your book is you know, you have these incredible um, the, the the imagery that you you're able to create, and you just really bring you into the situation. You you tell these personal stories, these interactions. You have, there's um, there's people in there. There's um, the story of Ethan and Percy and David and the expert and the and the introduction mm-hmm. of you know an, an administrator talking about the five wise protocol and and this all these stories you've already heard uh, um, Sinke talking about. They're they're so powerful in the book, and and it makes it so that you know you just cannot stop reading and i and i love that because what you're talking about is that your book gets into just it, it's stuff that's got to be addressed and when uh, and and i want to talk about this before we get into the the close of your book which is you know one of the things you say in chapter 7 is you say the political f- faddishness that is a woefully permanent part of public education reform has amped up our instinct to overcorrect this statement just grabbed me and it, it's it, could you talk about this comment in terms of examples of outlawing suspensions and making expulsions nearly impossible yeah so this is so that is partly is a response uh I, I think that chapter is um called a less than zero tolerance um so the zero tolerance movement i had to you know i had to really aggressively do research into all this and figure out where all this stuff came so zero tolerance movement was a very smart movement in its initial uh, planning. We gun violence is now so commonplace in a lot of the, excuse me, frankly, you know, the sort of middle class, rural, white areas. It is just so common. We forget that in the '90s, when it was primarily happening in some of the inner cities, how shocking it was. So zero tolerance, which was in, implemented by the Clinton administration, um, really was a response to that, and it was a federal law laid down that said if a 
kid brings a gun to school, they have to be expelled. Well, everybody would cheer and applaud and agree with that. But when, again, unintended consequences or not uh, unforeseen consequences, so guns were outlawed, so kids would bring knives. So then, of course, you got to outlaw knives. But also because of guns and um, knives, uh, the, the, those were there because kids were in these schools and they were selling drugs. Well, the way you kind of knew a kid was selling drugs is if they had a wad, a sudden they had a wad, a hundred dollar bills, a five dollar that was a you know, hundred dollars on them for no reason or huddling in bathrooms and shouldn't be there. So these were all efforts to crack down on a really serious problem that was making these schools unsafe. There were two problems with zero times, one of which when kids were expelled, they were essentially put into really awful reform schools. There were really just many jails and they were not getting any type of ameliorative or uh, remedial um, emotional, psychological um, uh, attention and or academic. And so essentially what happened was kids were really just put out on the street or left to kind of rot. That's a problem. Um, and so, and th that was the first one. The second problem is this issue of mission creep, as I say, First, it was guns, then it was knives, and then um, after that, the kids they banned knives. So then they would, so then kids would bring in brass knuckles, but you can break somebody's jaw with a brass knuckle. So then brass knuckles. So they more and more things were being banned, and kids were being put out of schools for gradually lesser and lesser offenses. So any fight that would have you might get suspended for two weeks or, or might even be expelled. But then it got to a point where I had a kid who was seventh grade who had a wad of cash on him, but he, and he got arrested, but he was selling potato chips. And I know he was one of my kids, but because it was contraband initiated during this zero tolerance, he had a wad of cash, he can't have a wad of cash, he can't be selling things that the school did not approve, which came from the drug era, he still got arrested. Can you imagine how traumatizing it is to a seventh grader to be arrested for selling potato chips? <laughs> no. So that is, that was the problem with zero tolerance and it needed to be addressed and dialed down significantly. But the problem is that's not what happened because it's never what happens in this society. What happened in this society is we decided to go from complete zero tolerance to the 180 degree opposite, which is complete tolerance. So now they have driven out all suspensions, all and they have made expulsion impossibly difficult. And they have hung on it, two issues, and it has created complete chaos in some of these schools. And here's the problem. Kids figure out really quickly how much they can get away with. F kids have figured out really quickly that they can't be suspended for, for just about anything these days. And when you take away suspension, you also take away detention because the consequence for not going to detention is being suspended. But if you can't be suspended, then what is there? Um, and then there's another part of the book, chapter eight, which we don't have to go into now, but I couldn't realize, and I'll leave this mystery open for the reader to read. <laughs> I could not figure what the initial reason was they had banned suspensions. And I just could, and I, there was a kid who was going to town on this teacher. And I just remember, why would they keep this kid? He was a complete scoundrel. And I was like, why don't they just kick him out or send him home at least for two days? And nobody could answer for me during the beginning of this year why suspensions have been eliminated. It eventually, the story that eventually that the public hears is that 
um, poor boys or poor black boys are being suspended at a high rate. And that is true. And it's something that needs to be addressed. But that was not the initial reason. And this was a huge, huge mystery that I this was the second mystery. The first mystery was um, why kids started to go from fighting each other to fight the teacher. The answer was this crack cocaine epidemic. Then the second mystery was why suspensions have been banned. And there is a very specific and somewhat controversial, I think, I, I, um, reason that it happened and it's happening. And I'll let the reader uh, get to that chapter and uh, it'll, uh, I think it'll be a bit eye-opening eye for people. But I can tell you this, that the banning of those, you, you, you always have to have, you can have carrots, but you all also need a stick. And the most important stick that a teacher, a principal, and administrators has to being able to say, you know what, you crossed the line. You got to go home today. Don't come back unless your parent is with you. And I love it because that's you know something I ran into quite a bit. And over the last bunch of years, as, as an administrator, I've I've been somebody who had had uh, in the toward the end of all that time, I had uh, saw exactly what you're talking about, where basically you're told uh, no more, come up with something else. And, yeah. uh, that we could spend a lot of time on that. And that's one of those things where, you know, I, I often saw it as you're also rewarding and protecting the students in the classroom, um, who exactly. are trying to be there to get an education and you're removing that uh, thorn from them. So interesting. And, and so what I'd like to do now is, you know, as we're trying to close and like he said, you know, you got to get his book, man, you got to get, <laughs> got to get his book. We can't give you everything here and you got to leave right. some stuff wanting more. Right. Um, what I'd like you to do is you end the book with an explanation of what can we do now. And this is what I love because you don't just end it by saying we got to do something. You say, here's some things that I think we got to do. And it's a nice list. Um, and what I'd like you to do is um, the list. Could you choose like your favorite out of this list? And I'm going to list them here in just a second. And uh, let's, let's just talk about whatever, which one you'd like to focus on the most. Uh, and the list goes like this. Teach impulse control. No more charter schools channel private donations directly to poor schools, bring back reform schools and reform them, reinstate classroom ejections, suspensions, and expulsions, hire more black men to teach, make middle schools the most important schools, bring back limited tracks, crack down on cursing, and use the courts. You yeah. got a favorite um, out of them? I, probably my favorite is hire, I say more because I was talking about black students, black schools, hire more men to teach, I would say in general, um, for tough black inner cities, hire more black men. You know, I think there was a statistic that said 20% of the public's teacher teaching force is men. 80% is women. That's no good. Boys need, and girls need male teachers in their lives. And especially kids, poor white kids, poor black kids, they absolutely need male teachers at the elementary and middle school level, especially. Um, and it could not be more important for their psychological and emotional development. Um, so that's the one thing that I'd say, if there's any way that that would be, that's actually sort of, I think, there are no Band-Aids. That's one of the problems. These have been problems that have been 30 years in the making. Right. And people want to say, oh, just stop suspensions, that will fix all of it. No. We have to look at short short and longer term solutions. There's no super short term solution, but the shortest is some aggressive effort over the next three to four to five years to really bring more men into teaching. Part of that is raising the salary. Men want to be, you know, our heads of households and want to be able to have income and support their family. Um, 
but that's of crucial importance to the development of boys and girls. The other one I would say is reform schools, and as I say, and reform them. Reform schools have essentially been mini jails, um, and they have not allowed kids to um, who are un, you know poorly socialized and don't don't get along well with other kids have anger issues. And there are some great reform schools out there who really have a great track record of dealing with kids who, um, you know, have chaotic behavior. Um, We really should be looking at those schools, trying to model us um, other schools after them for those kids who really have a difficult time working into the uh, normal school population. So I would say those two are, and, and, and the thing is, whatever works, let's do it. Like that's what, like, Let's not lie about what's work, what's not working. If it's not working, let's be honest about it. And, you know, there's this thing, restorative justice. In my experience, it doesn't really work. Maybe it doesn't, but it needs other things. But like, so that's what I would say. And stop the overcorrection. Like that's, so those would be, so my three, more male teachers, really good quality alternative schools. Let's call them alternative schools. And let's just be honest about what is working and what isn't. We're all here for the betterment of these kids, white and black, poor and not, for uh, and we all want them to be able to thrive, whatever political spectrum, I'm a liberal Democrat, um, but whatever political spectrum you fall on, it's about raising kids to be responsible, emotionally, psychologically healthy adults and citizens. So so powerful, and I, I think that uh, what you're saying there is exactly right. That uh, you know, in the we've got a very angry world right now, and uh, we've got to be able to cut through a lot of that so we can make sure that we're we truly are focused on um, raising our children as opposed to uh, just saying it. Yeah, um, exactly. They, I couldn't agree more. Well, uh, thank you so much, Sinke. I, I one of the things I want to do before we draw to a close because I have a couple questions that I want to end with, but uh, one of the things that I would love for you to do right now is tell our listeners where uh, they could uh, um, connect with you further or find out more information. Yeah. So I have a website, Sinke Henderson, C-I-N-Q-U-E, C-I-N-Q-U-E. It's uh, uh, in Italian, it's five in Italian, Cinque, but SinkeHenderson.com. You can contact me. I check that regularly. I also have a Twitter page. It's uh, it's French for I am Sinke. So Je suis Sinke. J-E-S-U-I-S, Twitter, Just We Sing K. I have a Facebook page as well um, for the book, Sit Down and Shut Up. Um, I am eager. I respond to emails. I'm eager for people's feedback. Um, I think as uh, I think that you can attest that if you once you crack into the, the, the title is a little jarring for a lot of people. <laughs> but I think once you get into it, you'll find that it's really a rich and subs- substantive look at a very serious problem and hopeful and funny and, you know, but also, you know, it has its uh, bracing moments as well. And I think people will really respond to it. So yeah, I can, I'm abundantly reachable at any of those, uh, any of those places. Awesome. And I will have them uh, listed in the show notes. You'll be able to, to, to link from there. So you don't have to stop and uh, write them down right now. If you're driving or out jogging or whatever, just what if uh, you would, uh, um, just go to my show notes page and I'll have uh, links right there for you to, uh, to get that information. If you got it, uh, you, sh- you should be able to find them also in your, in your uh, favorite podcast platform there. So um, thank you so much, Sinke. This is, this has been eye-opening. And it's been powerful. And I've got two last questions yep. and I'd like to go with them now. And first one is if you were given the chance to talk with 100 brand new teachers, 
who haven't started teaching yet, what advice would you give them? That's a good one. Um, I'd say they are, no matter what people say, odds are high is not your fault. (laughs) (laughs) This is a hard, hard, hard job, but it is the most important job. Um, I would, and, you know, find comfort and friends wherever you can find it among your colleagues to reinforce your commitment to teaching. Um, and just know you on the side of the angels. This is, you know, it's the only job that I've done that I've enjoyed as much as I enjoy writing. And my goal is to continue to te- try and teach in some capacity and be involved in education because I love it. I mean, nobody is more necessary than our teachers, despite what the politicians, the under the low pay, the awful hours. Um, and I think it can get better. It's time for it to get better for teachers out there. And I'm hoping this book um, can be the beginning of it, it, That's the other thing. The book is really a pie into teachers. I think uh, you'd agree. It really is a tribute to the importance of great teachers and how tough it is and how hey, we deserve a break. All you guys deserve a real round of applause and a break. Thank you. And I do agree. I did, uh, definitely is, uh, reached just like that. I, and, uh, greatly appreciate, uh, your, your thoughts there because wonderful advice. And, and so my last question is, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? And if given a chance to say thank you, who would it be? And what would you say? Wow, that's a great question. I've had so many good teachers when I look back over my life, both in uh, sort of, sec- you know, uh, formative K through 12, but also college. I had such amazing teachers. I've been so lucky about that. Um, I'm afraid if I were to pick one, I'm going to pick my first grade teacher, I don't know her first name. Her name is Miss James. She was a Jamaican lady who taught me at a school called St. Martin de Porres. It was a Catholic school. She was just so nice to me and so kind. And I just remember, I remember feeling that she loved me and that she was looking at, and that she liked me, I should actually say. That's better. And I, as a kid, because you don't think in those terms they love me, but I just remember thinking this teacher likes me. And it made me feel so good. And what's so funny is I saw her years later after I left her first grade class. I saw her my freshman year of college randomly in North Carolina. Had not seen her since I was in her in her first grade class and how she remembered me. I have no earthly idea how I remember her. I have no early idea, but yeah, there was, Ms. I don't know if she's still alive and she's out there, but she was just, I love Miss James. She was just the best. That's so awesome. It's, it's amazing how those powerful memories can be there, even though you're thinking, I was a kid. How do I, <laughs> and it's, yeah, absolutely. that's so cool. Cause it's, they did something that just made you say, I'm safe. I, you know, you yep. like me and I'm going to yep. work for you. That's cool stuff. Absolutely. Well, Sinke, thank you so much for sharing Sit Down and Shut Up, how discipline can set students free. Your work reveals so much about real issues in our schools. You know, Sit Down and Shut Up needs to be read by all educators, classroom teachers, and administrators. You know, I, I thank you. I'm wishing you the very best. Take care, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. 
Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.